God's true king leaves vengeance to God and believes God's promises. So if I asked you to think about revenge stories, whether in history or in fiction, I imagine that there's some different stories that might pop into your head. Stories where one person is wronged in such a way that you become swept up in, in cheering for the hero to carry out this act of revenge. Well, I suppose it's not the most classic story on revenge, whether in fiction or on the silver screen. The 80s movie The Princess Bride does have a memorable character in the person of Inigo Montoya. In a movie that takes very little seriously, Inigo takes his quest to find and kill the six-fingered man very seriously. Now the six-fingered man had killed his father. So he spent his whole life training with the sword. He has prepared exactly what he will say to this man. But if you ask the actor who played Inigo Montoya, his favorite line in the movie is not, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepared to die. According to a Times Magazine article, actor Mandy Patikin writes that he did not even realize what his favorite line should be until a couple decades later in life. And for the movie quoters in the room, it's probably a line you haven't thought to quote. Towards the end of the movie, Inigo says, you know, it's very strange. I've been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Now the actor who plays Inigo thinks that this line shows that his quest for revenge was pretty much a waste of a life and that this is the most important line in the film. He says, the actor says, I love the idea of giving up the vengeful nature that so many of us have. Too often we think that when we have a problem with our lives, or our country, that the way to fix it is to take an eye for an eye. But friends, can we simply give up this vengeful nature? Can we give up this attitude of taking an eye for an eye? Now, Mandy Paddington is not a Christian, but it seems like non-Christians as well can see the emptiness at the end of a, a quest for revenge. But what would put someone on that quest in the first place? And why would we even begin by cheering for the one seeking revenge? Perhaps it's because there truly was wrongdoing done, and we truly do want to see justice served. But who should be the one carrying out justice? Who should be the one who can carry out vengeance? And we actually heard the answer in the scripture reading this morning already. Vengeance is mine. I will 
repay, says the Lord. And not only are we going to consider the clear truth of that statement, but in our sermon passage this morning, we'll consider a story in which we see vengeance entrusted to God. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24 to 26. 1 Samuel 24 to 26. It's also printed in your bulletin. So the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are one great story that introduces the greatest king of Israel, King David. In the book of 1 Samuel, Israel's first king, King Saul, is shown to be exactly the kind of king that Israel had asked for. He's a king like the nations. And being a king like the nations, he is rejected by God. But David, the anointed king, who is spending much of the book of 1 Samuel running away from Saul, is portrayed as a man after God's own heart. God's choice for king is meant to be a king who fears God. And so far through the book of 1 Samuel, David has been acting the way that a true king should. To introduce the structure for the text this morning, you can picture a sandwich or a hamburger. I don't know how smart it is to mention food at the beginning of a sermon, but we'll keep going with that. So there are two pieces of bread and there's meat in the middle. Chapters 24 and 26 are like those two pieces of bread. And the meat in the middle is chapter 25. It's interesting if you compare chapters 24 and 26, how there there are just many uh, similarities between the two stories. And the Bible often has literary structures that are kind of like, like mirrors, especially in poetry. You'll see that quite often. So what is 1 Samuel 24 to 26 about? If I were to sum sum it up in one point, I would do so this way. Simply that God's true king leaves vengeance to God and believes God's promises. God's true king leaves vengeance to God and believes God's promises. We'll walk through this in two points. Point one is the true king keeps his men from vengeance and believes God's promises. And point two is God keeps his true king from vengeance and gives him God's promises. So let's begin with point one. The true king keeps his men from vengeance and believes God's promises. Please look with me at chapter 24. And then after we read chapter 24, we'll walk through chapter 26 and compare as we go. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord revenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So that's the end of chapter 24. Now if you flip over to chapter 26 and read verses 1 to 2. Chapter 26, verses 1 to 2 says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul indeed had come. So both chapters 24 and 26 begin with men telling Saul where David is, and Saul gathering his 3,000 chosen men to pursue David. Now the way that Saul and David begin their encounters in these two chapters is different. In chapter 24, Saul goes to the bathroom 
in a cave by himself, or at least he thought he was by himself. Saul may have brought 3,000 men with him, but he wants some privacy, and David and all his men are in the back of the cave. So Saul is in an obviously very vulnerable situation, alone in a cave with David and David's 600 men. So the men of David urge him to kill Saul. They think that this is obviously God's will. Look at this golden opportunity. This must be God's will, David, for him to put himself on his throne and to kill his enemy. But David disagrees. He restrains his men and he goes and he cuts off Saul's robe and then comes back. Now, even this act of David cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, David is conscience-stricken. So perhaps this may symbolize a bit of rebellion or the future transfer of authority of kingship to David. And so even this, what we think is a little act, causes David's conscience to be hurt, his heart to be struck. So notice how soft David's conscience is to wrongdoing here. And brothers and sisters, let our consciences also be soft, that we would feel guilt when we do something wrong, even if other people think it's a small thing. David speaks of Saul as the Lord's anointed. David will not put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. If you look at chapters 24 and 26, David over and over speaks of Saul as the Lord's anointed. And that is even though David himself has been anointed the next king of Israel. For this time, Saul is still reigning as king, and Saul was anointed by God's prophet. So David does not have the responsibility or the right to depose of a king that God has placed over his people. Now, chapter 26 is both similar and different in how David is given the opportunity to have Saul killed. Reading from verse 5 until verse 12 of chapter 26. So starting in verse 5. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. 
So again here, it's one of David's men who's urging David, oh, let me kill Saul. He's right there. He's sleeping. And somehow these two had just walked into the middle of a camp of 3,000 men and found Saul in the center. But here David again speaks of Saul as the Lord's anointed. And David continues by speaking of, of possible ways that Saul may die. God will judge Saul, but it's not David's decision when Saul will die. It's not by David's hand that Saul should die. So instead of using Saul's spear to kill him, David has Abishai grab Saul's spear and jar of water, and they leave. And if you're still wondering how it was possible for David and Abishai to sneak into the camp unnoticed, the narrator explains that a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on Saul and his men. So this was supernatural. It was a miracle. It's, it's not something that should happen this way. And this was a God-given opportunity, but it wasn't a God-given opportunity to do what Abishai thought to do. What we notice in both these stories is that David respects God's anointed king, not because of what kind of person Saul is, not because Saul earned respect, but David respects the God-given role that Saul had been placed in by God. Next, what happens in both chapters 24 and 26 is this exchange of words between David and Saul. In both exchanges, David appeals to his own innocence and his own smallness, basically asking, like, why are you hunting me down? He attempts to show that there's no logical reason for Saul to be trying to kill David. Look again at chapter 26, and in verses 13 to 20, we read, Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. In chapter 26, David continues by shouting out to Saul's general, Abner. 
saying that Abner deserves death because he did not protect his king. And then David again appeals to his own innocence. He feels like a partridge in the mountains that Saul has come to hunt. I suppose other than singing about a partridge in a pear tree, we don't talk about partridges that much. But they're a little bird, and Saul's after David with his 3,000 men. Notice as well that David feels that he has been driven out as if all of Israel is saying to David, go and serve other gods. David is feeling like living like a fugitive, that he may have to go leave Israel in order to save his own life. And if he leaves Israel, well, for a period of time already, he's not able to worship at the temple. For a period of time already, he's not able to, to offer sacrifices, to do the things that, that good Jewish people should be doing to worship God. So instead, David will, if we keep reading, and we will, he will soon run to a foreign land because he feels that's his only choice. Continue reading David's speech in chapter 26, starting in verse 21, we read, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now in both stories, David does not expect justice to come from Saul's hand. He does not truly expect Saul to change. But David very clearly expects justice to come from God's hand. David had said in chapter 24, verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And David closes his speech in 26, verse 24, by saying, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say in Saul's sight, he says in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David knows that he'll continue to need God's deliverance. David knows that Saul has done evil that should be punished. And David knows that the one to avenge Saul's sin is not David, it's God. God appointed Saul as king, and when the time comes, God will bring about Saul's death. And so each time, David restrained his men from killing Saul. Each time, David boldly spoke to Saul and pointed to his own innocence. David trusted that in God's timing and in God's way, God would keep his promises. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to remember about who God is. David had plenty of reasons to be bitter against Saul. 
Saul had put David on the run for his life. David was separated from his parents, his best friend Jonathan, his wife Michael, who Saul marries off to another man, as we read in chapter 25. But instead of this uncontrolled rage and this thirst for revenge, David knows that he must trust God and do what is right and honorable in God's sight. And David could, could discern that even when there was an opportunity to do something wrong, that it was still wrong. You probably have not had one person take as much away from you as Saul did from David. But I imagine we can all relate to temptations to small acts of revenge. After all, that other person deserves it, don't they? Older kids in the room, you understand this as well, I imagine. For the older siblings in the room, have you ever been tempted to ask mom or dad, well, can I just be the one to give my youngest brother a spanking? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Josiah is laughing, so I think he feels safe. Now, of course your parents wouldn't let you do that, right? Because even if your youngest brother does deserve some sort of discipline, that discipline is meant to come from the person who has God-given authority. That discipline is meant to come from your parents. So even if you've lived twice as long on this earth as your youngest sibling, you're still under the same authority as your youngest sibling. And that is how it is with all of us and God. When we're wronged, we have no authority to take justice into our own hands. We're to leave the punishment or the discipline up to God. So it's not our job to commit acts of revenge, whether small or big. If someone cuts you off in traffic, it's not your job to cut them off as soon as you get the next chance. If you're married and your spouse forgets to do the dishes a couple times, it's not your job to purposely also forget to do the dishes a couple times. None of you have ever thought to do that, right? Um, or if you feel that someone is giving you the cold shoulder, someone is like purposely being unfriendly for some reason, it's not your responsibility to be unfriendly back and give them the cold shoulder back. Brothers and sisters, God will bring about justice in the end. Putting ourselves in the place of judge and jury is not our job. Instead, Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That is a, a high calling. And it's something we wouldn't be able to do unless God changed our vengeful hearts first. So that brings us to the end of point one. As we see the true king keep his men from vengeance, and believe God's promises. That brings us to point two. God keeps his true king from vengeance and gives him God's promises. God keeps his true king from vengeance and gives him God's promises. Now it's interesting that David doesn't seem to be the hero nor the villain 
of this story in chapter 25. So please look with me as we read 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who has kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back to his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Nabal to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So I had introduced this whole section or the structure of the section, kind of like a hamburger. And then if you're, before we get to the meat, it's almost like there, there are two pieces of lettuce surrounding this meat in the center. That is verse 1, speaking of Samuel's death. And then verses 43 and 44, speaking of David's wives. We'll point out here as well, as kind of a side note, that David adding multiple wives is something a king of Israel is not supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17. So there are some, some bad signs here as well. But another thing interesting to consider in, in thinking of these two little beginnings and ends of this chapter is that Samuel dies in verse 1, and then Saul giving Michael his daughter David David's wife to another man is Saul acting as if David 
is already dead. Saul doesn't expect David to come back anytime soon and does not want David to continue as royal son-in-law. And so he has his daughter remarry. Then on to the meat in this chapter. I think that we can see a glimpse of the literary genius of the writer and of God-inspired writing as these three stories are told in succession. And even though Saul is absent in the story, I think the fact that both just the role that Saul plays in the stories that sandwich this middle story and then different aspects of what Nabal is like should have us still continue to be thinking of Saul. Saul is mentioned as having 3,000 men. Nabal has 3,000 sheep. And later in the chapter, Nabal is described as feasting like a king. In many ways, Nabal thinks of himself like a king. So as while Saul is the rejected king, Nabal is basically a, a fake king. Verse 3 introduces the contrasting characters that will be made clear in this chapter. The man Nabal, his wife Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. A feast time had come, and for quite some time David and his men had been a wall of protection around Nabal's sheep and flocks. David expected some generosity from Nabal in response. Who knows how many sheep might have been stolen if there wasn't 600 men acting as a wall. But David would give nothing. Even, uh, not David, Nabal would give David nothing. Nabal said mockingly, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now Nabal, of course, knows who David is. All of Israel knows who David is. The women have been singing songs about David. Nabal knows that David is the son of Jesse, so he obviously knows who David is. But Nabal, Nabal will not acknowledge David. He will share nothing with David. He speaks of my bread, my water, my meat. Nabal was very much focused on himself. And on hearing Nabal's response, David has his men strap on their swords. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to think why David has his men strap on their swords. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants warns Abigail of what Nabal had said to David, and Abigail takes decisive action. In contrast to Nabal's stinginess, not even providing bread or water, Abigail prepares abundant provisions. David had just muttered a curse against Nabal and all Nabal's men, but Abigail approaches him with both submission and confidence. Just imagine this woman on a donkey approaching 400 fugitive soldiers. Abigail speaks of herself as David's servant. She takes on full responsibility for her husband's sin herself, but also explains that she was ignorant of David's request. And Abigail boldly proclaims that it is the Lord who has restrained David from blood guilt and from saving by David's own hand. Abigail sees herself as God's instrument 
to help David do what is right and good. And Abigail is right. In response to what Abigail says, David blesses the name of the Lord for sending Abigail to him. And when Nabal dies later in the passage, David says, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. David, once corrected by the wisdom spoken by Abigail, sees the Lord's hand in keeping him from taking vengeance into his own hands. When we think of why David was meant to be the true king, we're meant to see not only what is good in David, but also how God continued to show mercy to David. God showed mercy in stopping David from sinning and from killing many innocent servants of Nabal. God stopped David from destroying Nabal and his men in a way that may bring back to mind how Saul would willingly destroy and kill an entire city. God was keeping innocent blood off the hands of David, at least for this time. King Saul was already sinning full throttle. King Saul would not listen to reason when he had the priest of Nob killed. But here the anointed King David is open to correction. And let us consider as well, brothers and sisters, are we open to God's correction in our lives? If God shows us mercy by giving us a warning or a roadblock on the path towards sin, will we listen to the warning? And do we have wise and humble and bold people in our life, like Abigail, who fear God and desire that you do what is right? Let us invite these people to speak truth to us and listen when they do. Let us invite one another to speak truth in our lives. This is one reason we need one another. It is God's mercy to us when he gives us opportunity to repent of sin, whether we're on the road to sin or have begun to commit a particular sin. When God brings us to this point, where we see how sinful or wrong something is, let us be quick to turn away from this sin. And friends, while there's a lot to be learned simply from the example of David, the example of Abigail, there's much more going on when we remember that this one story is in the grand story of the whole Bible. Abigail says to David in verse 28, For the Lord will certainly... Make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. This language of David's sure house sounds like a prophecy when read in light of God's covenant with David after he's reigning as king in 2 Samuel 7. We read in 2 Samuel 7, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is God speaking to David. And then in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The sure house that Abigail spoke of will be a house for God's name, and David's throne will be established forever. How is that possible? Well, it has something to do with what happened at Christmas. In the account of the birth of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, we read that there was a decree made by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And we read in verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So why does Luke, the author, want it to be crystal clear that Joseph is of the house of David? Because out of David's house would come a king whose throne would be established forever and ever. And so after Jesus' birth, recorded in the book of Matthew, wise men from the east saw his star and come asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. King Jesus coming, a descendant of David, to establish his rule and reign is the fulfillment of Abigail's prophecy. But Abigail also said something interesting that doesn't seem to fit 100% with the person of David, as we will see later. And she says to David, evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. But King David actually would sin wickedly in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah in the book of 2 Samuel. But the true son of David, the eternal king of Israel, the king of kings and lord of lords, would never sin. He would never commit wrongdoing, not just for a season of time, but for his whole life. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that King Jesus never sinned? It matters because we have sinned. We have sinned against God. Like Nabal, we deserve death for rejecting the true king. Only a perfect, sinless sacrifice could take our place, and that is what King Jesus came to do. King Jesus came humbly. When we speak of Jesus' triumphal entry, he is riding a donkey like Abigail not girding his sword with 400 armed men behind him. There's another famous revenge story called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, written back in the late 1800s. And in that story, what Judah Ben-Hur wants from Jesus, it's fictional, but what Judah Ben-Hur wants from Jesus is that Jesus would overthrow Rome, that he would gather men to overthrow Rome and reign as king. We know for, from Scripture that other people expected this of Jesus. But while it's fiction, what Judah Ben-Hur comes to realize in his own quest for vengeance against Rome as well, and against the Roman who betrayed him, is he actually meets Jesus 
and he actually, the author imagines what it would have been like for, for this man to have seen the crucifixion and to realize that I shouldn't be the one committing vengeance. To realize that the man who has every reason to commit vengeance at this time is willingly laying down his life for the people. And so by the end of that story, Judah Ben-Hur is no longer seeking vengeance, but he has come to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, this Christmas season we want to introduce you to King Jesus. You may want justice done against others for what they have done to you, but you also deserve judgment from God, as we all do. But King Jesus took our place. He was born as a baby. He died on a cross. And placed above his head was the charge written against him, the king of the Jews. Jesus the king was rejected by the world that he came to save. So friends, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you worship him as your king? And the Christians in this room would love to talk to you more about what it looks like to follow Jesus as King. If you're not a Christian, but you made an effort to come to church on a Sunday, I do imagine that you have questions about Jesus. And brothers and sisters, friends, let us also remember that it is because of King Jesus that we can leave vengeance fully in God's hands. Because one day we trust that King Jesus will return to judge. We don't have the authority to seek vengeance. We can trust that one day Jesus will judge. As we heard read earlier in the service, we're commanded, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's because Jesus overcame evil with good at the cross, that we can trust that he will do so again when he returns to destroy Satan and death and to judge the world. What a privilege it is to have a king who loved us, died for us, rose again in victory, and will come again to judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you, for you are the God who is just. I would praise you for you are the God who is merciful. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to die and to rise again. Lord, we thank you that Jesus reigns as king. Lord, would we be faithful servants of our king, faithful citizens of your kingdom, and would we continue to wait patiently, knowing that you will judge in the way that you see right. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.